Welcome back to the program. Immigration has once again become the issue of the day. Children are pouring across the border. Misinformation is rampant, and our national attitude has become mean-spirited. We say we are a nation of immigrants, yet what we really mean seems very different than the current reality. We have a system that has grown inefficient, prejudicial, and disconnected from the very human concerns of people seeking a better life. We're going to talk about this today with my guest, Aviva Chomsky. She's a professor of history and coordinator of Latin American studies at Salem State University. She's the author of several previous books and has been active in the Latin American Solidarity and Immigrants' Rights Movement for over 25 years. Her newest book is Undocumented, How Immigration Became Illegal. Aviva, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me on. And it seems very timely now, reading the paper the last few days. It does seem indeed very timely. And one of the things that, that is so powerful about this is that we now look at immigration as this problem as opposed to something that really was once a very positive part of the American experience. Talk about that in a general sense first. Well, um, I think we need to really look at what, how, what the term immigration has meant historically. And I think... Um, we talk about this being a country of immigrants and that we've looked at immigration positively in the past. Um, but I also think it's important to keep in mind that historically the term immigrant um, has always applied to not all people who are coming into the United States, only to some people who are coming into the United States. And the immigrants who were regarded positively um, were basically European immigrants. And people of color who were coming into the United States during most of the country's history were not considered to be immigrants at all. They were considered to be something else. Um, uh, they were considered to be workers. They were considered to be slaves. They were considered to be people who were allowed to be here, but not as immigrants per se. They were allowed to be here or even forced to be here, um, but to belong to a category of excluded people within the borders, but politically and legally excluded from the polity. And that this was really the case until after the Civil War, um, when something that Congress did uh, with the 14th Amendment um, created a new category of citizenship that extended citizenship beyond white people, because citizenship was always... Uh, only for white people before the 14th Amendment. The 14th Amendment created citizenship by birth, which is the first time that people of color were allowed to be citizens of the United States. And this is what started to change the country's ideas about immigration, because now people of color who came into the country could not be permanently maintained in a sort of a subcaste and not considered immigrants because they were going to have children who would be immigrants, who would be citizens. Um, so there's been a very strong racialized component in our ideas about who can be a citizen and who can even be considered an immigrant. Even among European immigrants, though, do, do we have a short memory in terms of the historical framework? Because certainly there was pushback against Irish immigrants and Italian immigrants at various points as well. Yes, there absolutely was. Um, 
and the uh, immigration legislation, restrictive, racially restrictive immigration legislation started after the Civil War, um, precisely to address this this problem in the eyes of Congress that people of color were now going to be able to obtain citizenship by being physically present and then having children who would become citizens by birth. Um, and so there was a very strong push to racially restrict immigration in order to maintain the whiteness of the country. And that started with the restrictions against Asians, Chinese, Japanese, and then all Asians. Um, and Asia was defined as a very large territory, about three quarters of the world's territory. And then it was extended even to those Europeans who were considered to be not quite white enough. Um, so their immigration was never stopped entirely. People like the Irish, the Italians, the Greeks, the Poles, um, the sort of not white enough Europeans, but it was drastically cut back also in the um, starting in 1917 and through the 1920s. Wouldn't we have, in, in a contemporary sense, when we have dealt with the issue of immigration in the past, particularly in the 80s, it doesn't seem like it was with the same degree, the same fervor that we're seeing today. Many of the issues were the same. The attitudes were different. Talk a little about that. Well, I think we do see something similar to the fervor we're seeing today. Um, but it was in, say, in the 19th century, in the early 20th century, but it was always expressed in explicitly racial terms. That is... Um, the invasion of the Chinese who are going to take over the territory and who are inadequate citizens because of their race. Um, and what's interesting today is that it's it's no longer legitimate to express this directly in terms of race. Um, and yet the uh, the attitudes are so extremely racialized. That is, these Central American children... Um, and, and even the term of illegality that's applied to so many of the immigrants that are crossing the border is an extraordinarily racialized term that has almost come to to replace race because it's not legitimate to openly discriminate on the basis of race anymore. But if we replace race with uh, legal status, suddenly it becomes legitimate to, to openly discriminate and to rail against people because of this this category that they're put into, which we no longer call a racial category, now we call it a category of legal status. There's also the sense of fear that seems to be more palpable today, and in many ways that seems to be a result of so many other things in society changing, that the demographic change, that the changes that come along with this wave of immigration is one more thing that, that gins up that fear. Yes, and I think that um, a lot of the fear is really manipulated by the way the system works. Um, and I'm just looking at in the town next over to Salem, Lynn, um, the mayor of Lynn, is one of these people who's railing against the influx of new immigrants and the impact that it's that it's having on the city. And one of the things she points out is that um, there's no funding for the school system to deal with. Uh, new children coming in. Um, the school systems are underfunded. 
And the problem isn't the new children coming in. The problem is the systematic defunding of the public school systems over the last decades. Um, but that gets turned into an attack on the children rather than looking at the systemic structural causes of the struggles in Lynn's schools. In a broader sense, though, it is it is reflective of so many other changes that are taking place in society, whether whether we put it under the rubric of creative destruction, whether it's as a result of technology, whether it's as a result of changes in employment, that, that we are going through a period of fundamental societal change. And, and this, even though it may not be related in any way, the issue of immigration, it just seems like one more change that are that are that are making people afraid. Yes. Um, but again, I think that we are led by our politicians, by our media, by, um, by our popular culture um, to sort of individualize the, these fears rather than mm-hmm. looking structurally at what's happening. So that, like I, I do think these fundamental structural changes that you're mentioning, like changes in the employment structure of the country that are and changes in the social welfare structure of the country and the public services, um, including the public schools, um, that these structural changes are truly deeply threatening to many people in the country and um, and deeply destructive to to large sectors of American society. But that we aren't we aren't provided with the analytical tools to understand these things that are happening. And it's so much easier to, to sort of look at the, at the person moving into your neighborhood and say, oh, it must be their fault. Do we make a mistake, though, in looking to political leaders as a place to find answers to these issues? Does it have to be dealt with in a way on a more personal and a more community way? Parts of the problem can only be addressed at the at the political issue. That is the um, the way our immigration laws are structured. Um, obviously, has to be changed. Um, at the same time, they were just it, it's both. It's both structural and personal community. Um, I mean, in some ways, I feel like the most hopeful types of legal change that are being Mm -hmm. proposed now are happening at a community level, that is, um, or even at a state level, state and town levels, Mm -hmm. um, where given the impossibility of addressing the the real basis of the problem in our immigration laws um, or in, in our foreign policies, I should say, as well as our immigration laws, because in some ways our foreign policies are are much more fundamental than the immigration laws in in what's bringing about this influx of undocumented people and especially undocumented children. Um, but that because people are more empowered at the local level and at the state level to bring about political change, um, that's where we're seeing um, actually some of the most hopeful legislative uh uh, changes taking place, um, for example, in in-state tuition, um, in safe driving laws, in the Trust Act, where where local communities and states are sort of standing up to the federal government and saying, um, you know, we're not going to implement these harsh, punitive, and discriminatory laws that we're having handed down to us. When you look at that, 
the resulting aspect of it is a real patchwork of what the country looks like. And, and that in many ways feeds into a lot of this fear that's put forth. I mean, it's self-perpetuating in many respects. Yes, absolutely. Um, and um, I mean, on one hand, I think it's really positive that, that localities and states are, are trying to take a stand. But, but you're absolutely right that what we end up with is, is this sort of patchwork that, that just doesn't make any sense on the larger scale. The idea of illegal immigration, one of the things you talk about in, a, in Undocumented is that the whole phrase itself, the idea of it, is, is a relatively recent phenomenon. Talk a little bit about that, Aviva. Yes, and that connects to what I was mentioning earlier, mm-hmm. that, um, that really until the 1960s, the animus against immigrants was very openly and explicitly a racial Animus. That is, we don't want these people because of their race was was the way it was expressed, both in the laws and in the popular sentiment. Um, but there were some changes in the laws in the 1960s that um, that really created this category of illegal immigration um, from the 1960s into the present. Um, and if you look back, say, in the 1950s, when large numbers of, uh, of say, Operation Wetback, when large numbers of, of Mexicans and Mexican-Americans were expelled from the country, um, it wasn't precisely on the basis of illegality. It was on the basis of race, uh, of Mexican being considered a race. We don't want these Mexicans in the country. And so people who were U.S. citizens were of Mexican origin were expelled along with people of varying different immigration statuses. Um, but the, the laws um, bringing Mexicans into the country as workers, that, that is, all of, interestingly enough, all of the immigration restrictions that were passed in the 19th century, the Chinese Exclusion Act, the Asiatic Barred Zone, the numeric restrictions on Southern and Eastern Europeans, Mexicans were never restricted during that whole uh, hundred years of of laws restricting immigration from, say, 1865 to 1965. There were no restrictions placed on Mexican immigration. Um, Mexicans were crossing the border in large numbers, um, primarily as seasonal workers, um, mostly recruited by U.S. employers and um, brought in on U.S.-built railroads that were built uh, specifically to bring them here. Um, and from 1942 till 1964, through the Bracero Program, a U.S. government-sponsored program, um, explicitly set up with the Mexican government to bring in huge numbers of Mexicans as guest workers. So during that whole time until 1965, there were no restrictions on Mexicans crossing the border into the United States um, because they were not considered immigrants because immigrants were people who were coming to stay and Mexicans were considered to be workers, not people who were coming to stay. Um, So in the civil rights climate of the 1960s, two really important things happened um, that tried to start treating Mexicans like all other people in the world as potential immigrants when they crossed the border. Um, one is that the Bracero program was ended, and there had been a lot of political mobilizing 
um, against the Bracero program for its exploitative nature and its uh, its uh, the way it undermined labor organizing in the fields and the status of farm workers, whatever their their status as workers, um, whatever their their legal or immigration status, um, because of this guest worker program, uh, that was abolished in 1964, and it. Practically the same time in 1965, a new, a new massive overhaul of the immigration laws were passed that uh, that did away with all of the prohibitions, racial prohibitions on immigration, and set up a uniform quota system so that every country of the world had a uniform quota. Now the the rationale behind this was to de-racialize the system and to make to treat all people equally. Um, but what it did for, is, for the first time, put numerical restrictions on Mexican migrants into the United States. So that people who had been crossing the border for decades, even for generations, um, to work in the U.S., suddenly all of their routes, all of their legal routes to do this were cut off. And yet their need to work and the need of employers to employ them remained so that the Bracero program was essentially replaced by a massive system of so-called illegal immigration. Nonetheless, that so-called illegal immigration was not... um, Nobody tried to stop it or prosecute it in any way until the 1980s. Um, That is, people were crossing the border illegally in large numbers to work. People who had previously been doing that legally were now doing it illegally. But there was really no no system at the border to try to stop them from doing it, and there was no internal system to stop them from doing it. Um, That doesn't come about until the late 1980s, early 1990s, um, when this this true illegalizing of immigration and the idea that illegal immigration should be punished and that the border needs to be controlled um, starts starts to take over. And this is where I see is the real sort of um, re-racialization um, of, of undocumentedness, turning undocumented status into something to be, uh, to be punished. One of the other unintended consequences of this, it seems, was the degree to which we conflated immigration with employment and work created a situation that where unemployment was high, where, where the workforce, as we talked about before, was beginning to change, that it really fed into all the fears and prejudice that came out of that as well. Well, another um, unpredicted effect of the illegalization of work in 1986 that is making it illegal for people who who were in the country without documents to work um, and the militarization of the border that starts in the late 1980s, early 1990s um, is that the the nature of Mexican migration really changes as a result of these of of these, these new laws of the 80s and 90s. Um, and what had, in fact, been primarily a labor migration in the past um, turns into a very different demographic phenomenon because once it becomes so hard to cross the border, um, instead of coming and going, people started to come and stay. Um, 
So what had previously been a circular seasonal migration turns into a permanent migration and at the same time um, shifts from being primarily a young male migration to, be, to having many more women and children in it because once people are coming to stay, then they're bringing their families. So, um, so there has been historically... Um, a connection between migration and work. And in fact, there still is, most people migrate to work. Um, they come to work. Uh, but but it's also important to look at the how the changes in the U.S. economy have in fact created new job categories that are still actively seeking immigrant labor, that are seeking workers who can be super exploited in the kinds of jobs that... Um, that people who are born here who have other options simply are not going to do. Jobs that are seasonal and only exist for one or two months out of the year, mm -hmm. jobs that are extremely dangerous, jobs that have extremely unpleasant shifts where you're working 12-hour night shifts and then shifting to day shifts, um, the kinds of jobs that this new economy is creating that are that are so poorly paid, purely remunerated, um, poor conditions uh, that they that they continue to actively seek immigrant workers who can be exploited because of their lack of legal status. Which really explains why we see such a disconnect, even in this current debate that's going on between the political class and the business class in many respects. Yes, the business class... Um, relies on immigrant labor. And I mean, in, in some cases, uh, and I'm thinking of Mitt Romney in Massachusetts when he was um, running for president on a very anti-immigrant platform and it was unearthed by the Boston Globe that he actually hired undocumented workers to clean his lawn. So it's not even only the business class, um, but but that, the, that so many sectors of the economy are reliant on this sort of invisible, um, undocumented labor force. Anybody who eats fast food, for example, so you don't necessarily need to be a businessman or, you know, a millionaire to be relying on undocumented labor. Um, any, anybody who eats any kind of food really is, is probably relying on undocumented labor somewhere along the food chain. Given the complexity of all of these issues that we've touched on here, and given the kind of rhetoric that we're hearing right now about this issue, talk about how you see, or if you see, that circle ever being squared. The fact that the reality and the complexity of the issue is so disconnected from the rhetoric, it's hard to imagine how they ever find any common ground. You're right, it is. Um, I mean, I think that that in some ways what we need to do is is turn turn the focus away from immigration that is immigration isn't the problem um that that really we need to look at US foreign policy and US economic policy um both domestic and foreign um and and we need to have a much greater understanding of what our foreign policy is and how our foreign policy is creating these situations that people are fleeing from in, in Central America right now, for example. 
Um, and second, how our economy is structured and why there's such a huge demand for for exploitable immigrant labor in our economy. Um, and I think with a better understanding of these, we'll we can see immigration as a result rather than a cause of of the problems that we need to look at 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 trying to address. Of course, as we look around the world, we see, particularly in the West, immigration from different places seems to be a problem all over the place. This isn't a problem confined to the U.S. at this point. Well, but we also see some very um, distinct patterns in this immigration, and one of them is that colonialism results in immigration. That is, the French go to Algeria, they colonize it, they misrule it, um, and what do you know, in the late 20th century, Algerians start coming to France. The British colonize India. In the late 20th century, Indians start coming to Britain. Jamaicans start coming to Britain. Um, Latin Americans are coming to the United States. There's a very, very clear relationship between colonialism and the um, the development of post-colonial economies, both in the uh, colonizing countries and the colonized countries, that uh, that has led to the situation that we're in now. Um, it's not just a migration of people from poor countries to people in rich countries. It's a migration of people from formerly colonized countries into the former colonial powers. So there's, there's historical roots to this migration that um, that we can't just erase. It's ironic that all of these problems come at a time when we talk about globalization and we talk about the homogenization of international culture and we see the free flow of goods and, and money across borders, that when it comes to people, we have a very different problem. Yes, it is. Aviva Chomsky, her book is Undocumented, How Immigration Became Illegal. Aviva, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Oh, thanks a lot for having me on the show. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.